Let's pray together. We give you thanks, O oh God, for this morning and this day in which you invite us into this place, in which we can encounter you in a rich way as your people together. But yet, God, we know that you walk with us every day, everywhere we go. There's not one moment that we spend apart from the presence of your spirit. For that, God, we give you thanks. And so even in this very moment, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and bring to us the word we need to hear today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Was it not good to hear from our emerging leaders in the life of our congregation about their experience in Colorado this uh, last spring? And I think um, you'll all want to greet them afterwards, so I may make you all stand right here. That'll be really awkward, I know. But people can come up and, and just voice and affirm how much they experience God's blessing through what you had to say today. Thank you for leading us, and thank you for being the leaders you are right now. You are not the future of the church. You are the church. Never forget that. All right? Now, um, I want to tell you a story about pizza. Kind of a tough segue, I understand, but there is pizza. That picture was taken about six weeks ago when my wife and daughter and I were in Italy. We were in Rome, and we made those pizzas. And not only did we make that pizza, we ate that pizza. We didn't eat just those pizzas. We ate a lot of pizzas while we were in Florence, while we were in Rome. We ate too much pizza. Every time I have to put a belt on, I'm reminded of how much pizza I ate while I was in Italy. Tightened a few notches over this week, so things are going good. That being said, since we've been home, unless pizza has been given to us in some setting, like we had some friends bring over pizza before we moved out of our house in Sacramento. Last Friday, Bettina and I were here for the Friday night dinner and pizza was there. So unless pizza's been given to us, we have not actively tried to have pizza since we've been home. Because I'm jonesing for that pizza. Not Pizza Hut, that pizza. It's delicious. So we haven't even ordered a pizza since we've been home. Now, it's not that we've turned into Italian food snobs. Not saying that. It's just that there's not really an appetite for it like there is for that one. If you'll pardon the expression, I'm hungering, and if I could thirst, for that pizza. Jesus tells us in this particular parable in Matthew chapter 5 or 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now I have to tell you that me wanting to have an Italian pizza, we're going to call that a first world problem. Because there are people today, not just hundreds, not just thousands, but millions of people who have no idea where their next meal is going to come from. They are hungering and thirsting in a way that I do not know and do not experience. But isn't it interesting that the words Jesus uses in this text are about hungering and thirsting, our most primal and basic human need to hunger and to thirst. That's how deeply we need that which Jesus is telling us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
This morning, we're moving through a series of messages through the summer called Waymakers. And Waymakers is a series that is about how God offers to us in these beatitudes or these statements of blessing by Jesus, how we can make a way through this very confusing and disorienting season in our life. And it's also how God calls us as the church to make a way in a world that is just as confused and just as disoriented and just as lost. So there's not only a way for us to find our way, but there's also a way in which we as a church point the way to a God who offers us love, grace, and salvation. What's interesting about this passage in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is that word for righteousness. Are you all ready to learn some Greek today? Are you online ready to learn some Greek today? Because I don't know about these folks here. The word for righteousness in Greek is dikaiosune. Can you say it with me? Dikaiosune. It is the same exact word in Greek for justice. So you can swap the word righteousness out and put the word justice in if you want. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. That little shift, that acknowledgement that justice and righteousness are the, very much the same thing in the New Testament is an important nuance for us to understand. Because when we talk about righteousness, it's hard for us to think of that concept in, in big terms. Like if I asked you to think of a famous quote about righteousness, you might struggle to find one. But if I asked you to give me a famous quotation about justice, that might come a little easier to you. For example... One of the quotes about justice that's rather famous is from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said this in one of his speeches, the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice. Now that statement by King isn't original to him. He paraphrased that statement. So as much as we like to attribute it to Dr. King, so much so that President Obama had it woven into the carpet of the Oval Office, that quotation. It's not original to Dr. King. It comes actually from a 19th century abolitionist preacher named Theodore Parker. Everyone heard of Theodore Parker, right? It's a house full of people. You all online know Theodore Parker. Here's what he said. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. He goes on to say, I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. The promise for justice is fulfilled by God. And especially in the revealing to those who hunger and thirst for it. So here's a question I would like you to wonder about. We're going to put it up on the screen. How has your spiritual life become real for others around you? In what ways? I would argue that justice, righteousness, is the primary way our spiritual life is made real for people around us. 
So I'm very thankful this morning for Nolan Palmer. He's going to come this morning. Come on up, Nolan. He's going to read to you a passage of scripture that illustrates this notion of righteousness and justice. And it's a familiar story, perhaps from Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Has anyone online or in the house heard of a man named Zacchaeus before? A wee little man was he, as you might be fond of singing as a child. Let's hear this story in a new way. I want you to detach it from the song you may know about Zacchaeus. And I invite you all to hear it with, um, how would Jesus say, grown-up ears. So let's hear. Our passage today is from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 in the Common English Bible, which is your pew Bible and can be found there on page 1277. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay at your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Everyone who saw this grumbled, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. The human one came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. The story takes place while Jesus is making his journey from the Galilee in the north to the city of Jerusalem in the south. And he comes down the Jordan River Valley, which is the easiest pathway to take to get there. And where you come down the Jordan River Valley going south, you have to make a right turn to go up the mountain to Jerusalem. Where you make the right turn, that's Jericho. And so Jesus comes to Jericho before he makes his right turn to go to the west, up the mountain to Jerusalem. And as he enters Jericho, which is a city he has not been to very often... He's met there by a crowd of people who want to welcome him into the city of Jericho. Well, one of the people in the crowd is this gentleman named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus, as you know, is a wee little... Never mind. He's vertically challenged. It says in the scripture he's of short stature. In other words, he's not very tall. So he has a hard time seeing Jesus because of the crowd. So what Zacchaeus does is he comes up with an idea that he's going to go climb a tree so he can get a better view of Jesus coming into the city of Jericho. So the text tells us he climbs a sycamore tree. If you go to Jericho today, they have a number of these sycamore trees planted around the city that you can kind of get a visual of what it was like for Zacchaeus to climb into one of them. Of course, when you go to Jericho, they'll tell you it's the same tree that Zacchaeus climbed into 2,000 years ago. Have you ever met a 2,000-year-old sycamore tree? Probably not. So he climbs into the tree to see Jesus arriving. Isn't it interesting that of all the people gathered there, there's only one person that gets the attention of Jesus. It's Zacchaeus in a tree. 
Now, Zacchaeus is what's called the chief tax collector. If I had an hour or two, we could dive in to how tax collecting worked in the ancient world. So you ready for the super fast version? Good, you're learning to talk back to me, which is good. We'll get there. I got 10 or 15 years with you. We'll figure it out, okay? So how it works is like this. Is the taxes were assessed by the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities for a bunch of different tax assessments. In this case, Zacchaeus collects Roman taxes. And the particular tax he collects, he collects based on a tax lease. So here's how it works. Zacchaeus goes to the Romans and says, look, I'll collect all the taxes for this city. And the way Zacchaeus transacts that with the Roman government is he himself pays all of the taxes for that city. That's the lease he just bought. Now Zacchaeus has the responsibility of going and recouping his investment by collecting the taxes from everybody in the city. Sounds like a good plan, right? Unless, of course, the tax collector were to collect more than what was actually due in tax. You see how this works? So Zacchaeus began assessing more tax than was actually due, which was common for tax collectors in that day and age. So Zacchaeus becomes super, 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 I'm going to add one more, super wealthy. He becomes extraordinarily rich because he has the full force and power of the Roman government to collect whatever tax he deems fit. So if he tells you you owe 200 bucks and you say I only have 100, he'll send a Roman garrison to your house and to raid it for goods in order to pay the taxes. Zacchaeus is hated by everyone. Hated for two reasons. Number one, he's stolen money from everybody as a tax collector. Number two is he hangs out with Romans. And if you're a Jewish person and you hang out with Gentiles, that makes you unclean. According to Jewish law, you shouldn't talk to a Gentile, shake hands with a Gentile, eat a meal in a Gentile's house. And if you do, you're unclean. And then anybody who comes around you is unclean. Now the story starts to make some sense, doesn't it? Here's Zacchaeus in a tree. Jesus comes into Jericho, sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. Seems like a nice enough little sentence, isn't it? But I want you to understand what Jesus has done. He's validated Zacchaeus because he's seen Zacchaeus. He's going to go eat at Zacchaeus' house. So do you understand why the crowd is grumbling about it? Because now the uncleanliness of Zacchaeus is going to be on Jesus. And not only that, when Jesus came to town and he could have eaten dinner with anybody in Jericho, he decides to go to the house of the richest guy in town. Interesting, isn't it? You know, oftentimes we think that Jesus is completely aligned with the poor. Let's be careful. Jesus aligns himself with the margins. And at the margins in this story is not a poor person, it's a rich person. Now, when Jesus would speak to the poor, they had an affinity for what he had to say because they recognized a man who could identify with their plight. But when the rich heard Jesus, they typically rejected it with disdain. You might remember story after story of Jesus telling a rich person to go sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. And what happens in those stories? Rich person keeps all their money in their wallet and they leave. So let's not be confused. 
Jesus is ministering to the margins of society, both rich and poor. One of those groups really likes his message. One of those groups, the other one, typically rejects it when they hear it. So what does all this have to do with righteousness? Well, notice what happens. Zacchaeus, when he's talking to Jesus, after all the people are angry with Jesus about going to the rich guy's house for dinner, Zacchaeus says a couple things to Jesus. Zacchaeus says, Jesus, I'm going to give half of all I have to the poor. Typically, we think of a tithe as 10%. What's he going to give? 50% he's going to give away to the poor. And then he says, everybody I've stolen money from, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Now, in typical Jewish custom, if you stole money from someone, you'd have to pay them the amount back plus 20%. So do the math. If you steal 100 bucks, how much do you owe everyone? 120 bucks. Zacchaeus says, if I take $100 from somebody, I'm going to give them $400. See, you're getting really good at this now. Zacchaeus is giving back in excess of what's expected from him. He's not giving what's required. He's giving abundantly in excess. There's a number of different ways justice and righteousness happen in the story. For Zacchaeus, he's validated and seen by Jesus. But there's justice for other people as well. Not only is Zacchaeus seen, but imagine what it's like to be one of those poor people who receives some of half of Zacchaeus's wealth. Imagine what it's like to have Zacchaeus stolen money from you and he comes knocking at your door ready to pay you back four times what he took from you. Do you see how the justice flows out of the story? That as soon as Zacchaeus encounters this Jesus of justice, what happens in Zacchaeus' life? He becomes an agent of justice, of righteousness himself. It's a cause and effect relationship between them. But it's also for Jesus too. The mission and work of Jesus is validated. So I have a rhetorical question to ask you. Who else could turn a chief tax collector, the richest person in the known world, into the most generous person in the world? Jesus. Jesus can do that. Jesus can take the greediest, money-hungry, materialistic person and transform them into the most generous individual that you've ever met. I submit to you that Jesus and perhaps Jesus alone can do that in a person's life. So here's a question for you to ponder for a moment. How are gratitude and generosity linked how does a longing for God advance these two things? Gratitude and generosity. It's a question I want you to wonder about this week. So how's this text alive in us? Very quickly. Four ways. Number one, our desire to experience Jesus is elemental. Notice when Jesus says in the parable, not in the parable, the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you see how they're primal forces? Hunger and thirst. Jesus is suggesting that righteousness or justice is fundamental to our existence. And often our spirituality in the life of the church sometimes leans into being a little too recreational, a little too casual, a little too come and go. 
What Jesus offers us is something a little different. Your desire for justice and righteousness should be as basic as your need for food and water. And if that's you, blessed are you. Because you'll be satisfied. It requires intention and attention. Do you see that in Zacchaeus? His intention to be seen by Jesus and the attention he draws by being in the tree. Our drive to experience Jesus is elemental. We are not gathered here in this sanctuary this morning to consume religious goods and services, friends. We are gathered here to commune with God. Consume, commune. That's the question that we need to hold deep in our lives. The second way this text is alive in us is that justice making begins in us. Do you suppose that all those poor people that got half of Zacchaeus' money back and everyone he stole from got back fourfold, did they receive some justice from that? They received some, didn't they? When Zacchaeus returned the money he promised he was going to return. Do you see that nothing would have happened had Zacchaeus not been transformed by his experience of Jesus Christ? Justice making begins in us. It doesn't begin in someone else. It begins where? In us. It begins with our experience of Jesus Christ that then beckons us to be makers of justice and righteousness in the world. Zacchaeus had to be transformed. The danger of our time is being positional and opinionated to the exclusion of our own transformation. Social media and other outlets give us the ideal platform for this hypocrisy that we can spout opinion again and again and again and again but yet do nothing other than spout opinion. Have we ever lived in a more narcissistic age in which we aggrandize our own thoughts so much but yet we think so little of what God could do in us and through us. Third, we play the long game of righteousness. The long game. Remember that, more, that arc of history? Remember that Dr. King talked about and Theodore Parker talked about that long arc? We know where that arc ends. That arc ends with the perfect love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's where the arc ends. We play a long game. I'm going to say something to you this morning that I'll say a lot. And it's this. I heard it from Rick Warren years ago. You can never outgive God. I dare you to try. You can never outgive God. So in this justice-making work, remember that God has already dispensed more justice than you could ever imagine. God's loved more than you could ever imagine. God's given more than you could ever give. That's a game you can't win. So God calls us to win it with him. The last piece is this. Generosity reveals a longing for God. The barometer for someone who longs for God is a generous heart. Remember we talked a moment ago about the connection between gratitude and generosity? I can tell you the number one way to find someone whose heart is filled with gratitude. 
and that's to find a generous person. Because if they're generous, their heart is filled with gratitude. If they are not generous, guess what? You can reverse engineer the equation. Over the years in the life of the local church, I've pastored for 28 years in local congregations. I've found that oftentimes the most caustic, angry, bitter people in my church give very little energy, time, and money. But I've found that the people who give the most time, give the most energy, and the most money relative to themselves, relative to themselves, are people who have hearts filled with gratitude. So thankful. So thankful to God. So thankful to others. I want to encourage us to be that kind of people. Generosity reveals a longing for God. The founder of the Methodist movement was a man named John Wesley. Heard of him? Every year, John Wesley had a prayer as part of a covenant service in which the Methodist people would rededicate themselves to God on an annual basis. It's called John Wesley's Covenant Service. And there's one part of the prayer that's particularly important for the conversation today. Wesley says, God will either be all in all or nothing at all. This is the Methodist way. That we are a people consumed with our pursuit of Jesus, our hunger, our longing for God to make him all in all in our lives. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Have you ever thought about this little tiny cup with the impossible to open little membrane on the top? Have you ever thought about this cup just for a moment and, and depart from the problematics of this, all right? That arc of moral history, it ends right here. The thing that Dr. King talks about, the thing that Theodore Parker talked about, it ends right here. Through this act of God giving his own son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to save the world is God's perfect act of justice, is it not? Can I get a witness? Amen. This is God's perfect, ultimate act of justice. In Jesus' broken body and his spilt blood, God has made right the universe and given justice to all. This is where the ark ends. That's why this table is open to everyone. It's been a hallmark of the Methodist tradition since 1741 that our table is open to everyone who would seek. Because if you hunger and you thirst for justice... God's promise is that if you come to this table, it's going to be satisfied. Does anyone want to be satisfied today? And Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this table. A table of, uh, that, that, that creates tremendous gratitude within us. It's difficult, God, for us to come to this table and not be filled with a sense of gratitude for what you have done for us. We thank you for this promise of righteousness or justice. Help us to be transformed by it. Even as we share in this bread and cup, transform us and renew us. 
On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup, he returned thanks to you, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, drink from this all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Feed us during this time. Satisfy our hunger and thirst. And may we leave this place filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for all you have done in Jesus Christ. All honor, praise, and glory are yours, Almighty Father, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen.